Are you a sneakerhead? A baller? Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. It's Kicks and Bricks, where we got game on the streets and on the court. Here's your host, Jamel Cutler. Welcome to another edition of Kicks and Bricks. Today we have Paul Knieper, author of the new book, The Knicks of the 90s. What's up, Paul? How you doing? Hey, how you doing, Jamel? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, man. So um, what kind of inspired you to write this book? I've been, you know, I, I grew up on those Knicks teams, the Knicks of the 90s. Um, I lived and died with every shot and loose ball and defensive stand. And uh, uh, I just kind of came up with the idea one day. Well, it really came to me like, hey, you know, that somebody should write a, a book about the 90s Knicks. And then I thought, well, why not me? So I, I went from there. Like, can you talk about like some of the challenges that come along with setting up interviews with people? Because a lot of people think, like getting interviews with players and coaches is easy. Like I, I work in journalism, so I could personally vouch that's half the battle right there. Can you talk about like the difficulties and like getting all your sources and um, setting up all the interviews f- for the book? Yeah, I mean you nailed it, Jamal. It, it's it's not easy. It's it's kind of a two step process. One uh, to track these people down, you know, to get a good 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 contact information for them. Some of them is are difficult. Some are kind of easy in that, you know, there are guys that are still around the game. Like a guy like Derek Harper is an announcer for the Mavericks right now. And I knew that. So I went to Mavericks PR and they hooked me up with Harper really easily. Um, so some guys like that are, are fairly easy. Some guys are a lot more difficult. You have to do a lot of digging and maybe reach out to their agent or um, somebody they work with, or, you know, like, Charles Oakley, for example, I got to him through his his uh, college coach. I got in touch with his college coach, talked to him about a young Oakley, and, and he ended up putting me in touch with Oakley. So that's really hard. And then once, of course, once you get contact information, um, you know, you got to convince the person to talk to you. And uh, I'm not, you know, I, I've done some writing for Bleacher Report, but I'm not. I'm not Bill Simmons, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not Zach Lowe. I'm not a huge name in the industry and I don't have, you know, like ESPN behind me. So it's a bit of a sell job. And then even once you sell yourself, you never know. You know, I have guys who like I set up appointments to talk to people, you know, all right, well, 12 o'clock on Thursday. And then, you know, they don't answer and you try again. Then you never get in touch with them and stuff like that. They blow you off. So it's a challenge for sure. All right, so like the 90s Knicks, they were an important team in the annals of New York sports. Even though they didn't win a chip, they still have a fond place in my heart, even more so of the 70 Knicks because, I mean, they won two titles, but that was before my time. So so I can't really tell you much about that team. But the 90s Knicks, you know, that has that team has a special place in my heart. Yeah, I think for so many of us, right? I, I don't know how old you are, Jamal. Maybe we're around the same age, but but – uh, similarly, yeah, I'm too young to remember those 70s teams and for a whole, you know, for a generation of Knicks fans that didn't grow up with those 70s teams, that those were the teams, those 90s teams. And I think even people who saw those 70s teams appreciated those 90 Knicks, 90s Knicks because uh, they always played hard. All right. So, like, in 1991, like, 
like the Knicks, they were embroiled in a contract dispute with um like Patrick Ewing. Like he just turned thirty, and up and and up into that point, you know, he's been kind of like injury prone. He didn't really play with Bernard King, and um he sort of wanted out. Like you detailed this in your book, like. How different would NBA history look if Ewan like would have eventually went to Golden State and um, teamed up with Run TMC? Oh man, can you imagine that? I mean, that's the one thing that team was missing. They had so much scoring, such great perimeter players in, in Hardaway and, and Weber and Richmond. And if you would have added Patrick to that mix, man, I have to think that team wins a couple championships. Um, that that I mean, that would have been crazy. Uh, but yeah, who knows, right? I mean, the '90s would have never. Those '90s Knicks teams that you and I loved, it they would have they would have never existed with Patrick gone, and and uh, it would have had a huge ripple effect on the whole league. You know, and like in '91, well, well, prior to that, like you and he kind of sold himself short by signing a long-term contract, like back in his rookie season, like sort of what Scottie Pippen did, basically, and like as he progressed, like the business of the game was kind of like going up. So, like you talk about, like the backroom politics that go into like dealing with agents as it relates to NBA contracts. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, it was a crazy time when Patrick signed, he signed as a rookie in 1985. It was the highest contract in NBA history as a rookie. Um, and as you, as you, as you mentioned already five, six years later, 1991, it wasn't, he, you know, was arguably not making what he should make anymore. Um, at that point, it was it was a period of tremendous growth in the league, right? Because Patrick came in the league right the year after Michael Jordan, and the, in many ways, the '80s is when bas- NBA basketball really took off. Um, first with Magic and Bird, and then of course Michael took it to a whole other level. And so um, the, the the salaries for not just stars but for all players really skyrocketed throughout the '80s, um, and so. Uh, yeah, Patrick's by the, by, you know, several years into that historic contract, it was a 10 year contract. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as much as it, it seemed when he signed it. You know, and, and I feel like if player empowerment, if player empowerment was like such a vogue thing, like it is now, I really think like you would have left the Knicks way before 1991. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it was a different world back then, you know, that the, the the organizations had the power, the coaches had a lot more power and disputes with players, and, yeah, he might have left. You know, and, uh, and Dave Checkets, he kind of locked up Ewan, and that kind of, like, enabled him to, like, go after Pat Riley. Like, do you think that rough-and-tough style that the Knicks were synonymous with would have, like, worked under someone else other than Pat Riley? Um, man, I don't know. You know, Pat was so special. There are other coaches that would have like that, that might have tried it. I mean, of course, Chuck Daly was successful playing that way with the Bad Boy Pistons. Um, there are other coaches that might have tried playing that way. Uh, but but Riley had so much respect. Um, when he got to New York because of all the rings he won in LA, that he could demand so much of his players physically, mentally. And and they provided it. And uh, he was a special coach in that he had he had the, the discipline himself to um, 
to hold guys accountable and to make sure that guys gave that 100% effort and played with that kind of physical mentality that he demanded. So I don't know. I think other coaches might have tried it. I don't know that other coaches might have been would have been as successful with it. So like kind of pre Pat Riley, like that that Knicks um those Knicks teams like they had so much turnaround. I think they had like two coaches in like three years, and then they had a new GM too. Like can you talk about like the culture and like the stability that Riley brought to the team. Yeah, I mean you hit the nail on the head. I, Patrick played for. I think it was five coaches in his first six years and either three or four general managers. When Dave Jenkins, who you mentioned, when he became president of the team, he sat down with Patrick and uh, he compared it to he compared talking to Patrick to talking, talking to an, an orphan who had already lived in several different foster homes. That there just wasn't it was a different style of play. I mean, kind of like we've seen recently with the Knicks, right? Just mm-hmm. constant roster turnover, different style of play. Uh, no sense of stability, no continuity, and um, no direction. The, pers- the, the the franchise didn't really have any personality. Um, and so Riley kind of brought that all back um, almost by himself, really. And I look at, like, what he culture is today, and I feel that that could have been us here, if, you know, if Riley would have stayed here past 95 or if they would have gave him, you know, like uh, – um, coach GM type of role like like Doc Rivers had with the Clippers yeah that's uh, man that's a that's that's it's tough as a Knicks fan to look at that right I mean the last 25 you left 25 years ago and and you look at how that heat franchise is done how the Knicks franchise is done in the last couple decades and it's it's night and day uh yeah I mean it was a big it was a big deal when Pat left he wanted he wanted to be president of the Knicks. Um, he wanted an ownership share as well. And the ownership share just wasn't going to happen. Uh, there were a couple of corp- two different corporations owned the Knicks, ITT and Cablevision. And they each had big corporate boards. And it was very different than um, certain franchises where you have kind of one face of the one owner who's kind of the face of the franchise and he makes all the decisions. In the Knicks case, the CEOs of the various companies had to report back to boards. It was complicated. And um, and Dave Checkets, who was promoted from president of the Knicks to president of the Garden, was somewhat reluctant to make Riley president of the team. And it's a big question. Would Riley have stayed if they had just made a president without the ownership shares? I don't know. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. You know, and like today's players, like they're always fraternizing. You know, um, going out to dinner together, kind of like 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 LeBron and Chris Paul and his crew. Like back in the '90s, you know, Pat Riley, he didn't even allow players to um, go to dinner together, even if they were college teammates. He had the no layup rule. You know, there was a fine of whatever it was to um, if they knock him down and picked up the other guy. I mean, like. That's what I miss most about, you know, his style of play. Yeah, it was no nonsense, right? It was it was tough. It was intense. And that's, you know, part of that is, I mean, that was definitely his style. But there's, I mean, the, the, the game has changed, right? The rules have changed. You're not allowed to be as physical anymore. Uh, it's much more opened up. It's higher scoring. Um, players, I think there's more player movement now. 
And so you don't have the same intense rivalries, I think, that you did then. And, you know, there are some advantages to the way it is now. But I think those of us that watch those 90s Knicks know how great it was to have those, uh, to have that type of intensity, how exciting that was, even if they weren't scoring as much. You know, um, a few months ago, I was talking to John Starks about, you know, Pat Riley and his famous practices. And he told me once, like, during his first practice, like, he threw up about two or three times because, like, they were so intense. And especially on game days, like, he ran practices on game days when, like, most teams, they just do, like, a light shoot around. Yeah, Riley Riley didn't even let the Knicks um, use the word shoot around. They didn't even like the word being used. It was on game days. He did a full practice. Um, and some of the guys got frustrated with that uh, and and complained a little bit. Uh, I talked to Xavier McDaniels with the Knicks for a year. He said he complained to Patrick about that. He's like, because Xavier had knee problems and Patrick had knee problems. He said between our knees, he said he's going to kill our careers. <laughs> and he was kind of hoping Patrick would, you know, go talk to Riley. And Pat- Patrick was like, this is that's the deal. You know, we just got to shut up and put in the work. And, and that was, and that was, you know, that team was full of guys who just kind of shut up and put in the work, right? Was, sometimes they bitched a little, but they put in the work and that that's part of what made them special. And they had it like twice as bad. Cause I think um, coach Tibbs, um, the head coach now, I think he was, you know, an assistant back then with the, um, yeah, those teams. Yeah, so like, yeah, he not under Riley, but a few years later under Van Gundy, Tibbs was an assistant under mm-hmm. Van Gundy. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. Tibbs is from the old school. Well, Jeff Van Gundy, he was just as tough as Riley. So, so like either way. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. I mean, to their knees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like from like a media standpoint, you know, practices was closed, you know, media and broadcasters, I think they were banned from like the bus you know, in a team playing back then? Like, do you feel like because of this rule, like, you know, the beat reporters of that time, like they were harsher on on Riley and the Knicks, you know, more than usual? That's interesting. Um, I know they were frustrated by that. Uh, they felt he took it too far. Um, but I, I don't think they were harder on the team. I mean, the team was winning, right? And, and uh yeah, there were times where they were critical, but um, but the team was was winning, so I think it was it was hard for them to argue with the results. You know, and when they brought him in, like he immediately brought you know a champ a championship or bus mentality, like due to his reputation in L.A. You know, a lot of people thought he was going to bring Showtime, but um, coincidentally, he brought you know the rough and stuff style and play that we know and love. Do you feel like um, if that team with that identity played in the modern-day NBA, you think, you know, do you feel that that team would have the success that they had back then today? Uh, No, because um, if they played under today's rules, no. You know, if they played under the old rules where they could hand check and they could be really physical and knock you around, I think they would be okay. All right, so how about, um, like, 2004 rules, like, around that time? That's kind of, like, in the mid. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think they could. I think they could. Absolutely. Um, because they defended. And so the, their defense kept them in games. Scoring was a problem at times, but they always, they're always in games because, because they defended. 
you know, and you just mentioned defense. Like, from my point of view, you know, I think, like, the two best coaches you and ever had was um, John Thompson and Pat Riley because they brought out the best of him defensively. You know, John Thompson at Georgetown when Ewan was young and Pat Riley, you know, when he had whatever was left of Patrick Ewan's knees at that time. Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, those are two Hall of Fame coaches. Those are legends, right? And and I think Patrick, I think his game really grew and and flourished under both of those guys. And looking back on things, like, he even brought two guys off the street, basically, John Starks and Anthony Mason. And looking back now, you know, those two guys were the heart and soul of that team because they played with such a, I don't want to say reckless, but it was like okay. a – it was like a hell bent. Like they didn't want to go back to wherever they just came from, you know? Yeah. Those guys were hungry. They were hungry. And it really shows that, you know, team building. Yeah. Patrick obviously was the first pick in the draft, but you know, sometimes we get so hung up on draft pick, what draft pick do you guys have? Or, but sometimes it's about hitting on the pick that you do have, or, or just bringing in the right guys, you know? I mean, I would, you look at the, this Miami heat team that just went to the finals. Like there are no, Top, there were no top picks on that team. You know, Jimmy Butler even was 20-something. Uh, Duncan Robinson was undrafted, ended up being a starter on, on a finals team. Um, so, yeah, you got to hit, you know, getting lucky in the draft is great, but you have to – there are different ways to build a team. And um, and Starks and Mace, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, those guys, they were hungry, and they, were, they did not want to go back where they came from. <laughs> Can you imagine Jimmy Butler playing on um like the ninety three team or the ninety four team? Yeah, I, I really mean, like, could. I think he could. He's he's got that dog in him. You know, he gets after it, and uh, there aren't a lot of players like that anymore in the league. But uh, he's one of those guys that I could see playing on those teams. Right, and like from ninety two to ninety nine, for the most part, the Knicks, you know, they made the playoffs consistently, um, but they kept on getting eliminated by the Bulls. <clears throat> like from which which 90s Knicks team do you feel was like best equipped to win a title? For me personally, I think their best shot was like 93 to about 95. Yeah, I mean, obviously 94, you know, they, they went to game seven of the finals, so they came within a game. Um, a lot of guys I talked to uh, think actually think that 93 team was even better than the 94 team. And the 93 team, they lost in the, in the conference finals to the Bulls. Um, and that was the, the infamous Charles Smith game. Um, so I, I think, I think that those two years, 93, 94 were the, were the best of those 90 years, nineties years. If, if it wasn't for MJ, like how many titles do you think the Bulls would have um, won? I mean, the Knicks would have won. Uh, I give them at least two. Yeah. I think one. I think 93, they would have won it because 94, he wasn't there. Uh, he was playing baseball that year. Um, 95, he was there, but he wasn't really, you know, Michael. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, that, I think, I think 93, they would have won it. You know, the Bulls ripped the Knicks heart, Knicks fans heart out all the time. But, you know, the guy that did it to me the most was Reggie Miller, like, even yeah. like even today, when I see him like in passing covering the game, I'm like, really. 
it's so it's funny because as a Knicks fan, like, you know, he works for TNT I like and that. I hear him do the games and I have no I, I think he's awful. Like I think he's an awful announcer, but I have no idea if that if he really is awful or it's just that I, 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 I have you. so yeah. much hatred for the guy from the 90s that I can't I can't be objective, you know, so I don't know. I don't know, but I, I, I feel you, man. Like that guy. Yeah. He just, he just, uh, yes, even more than Michael, because it's almost, it's almost like you respect Michael more than Reggie. And I respect Reggie. He was a great mm-hmm. player, but Michael is like, all right, Michael's, you know, he's the greatest to ever do it. But Reggie, he's not, the, he's not, you know, he wasn't in that class, but he killed us. He just absolutely killed us. And, uh, oh man. Yeah. Reggie he's, was, yeah, he's kind of like Paul Pierce basically. Yeah, yeah, killer. <laughs> All right, so um, so eventually Pat Riley he went to Miami, right? And like both teams, the Knicks and the Heat, they were like mirror images of each other, and that's what made the rivalry that intense. And is and it's one of my favorite, you know, New York sports rivalries when I look back at the nineties. Yeah, I mean those, those that rivalry. They played four years in a row. All four years went to a final decisive game. They were really close. You had um, you had a couple great brawls: the the <laughs> Charlie Ward and PJ Brown, and Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning. Both of those are really memorable. You had the whole Riley thing. You know, New Yorkers hated Riley because he 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 left us for Miami, and now he's going against his. You know, his his protege and Jeff Van Gundy, Van Gundy learned so much of. And as you said, his coaching style was very similar to Riley. They actually used a lot of the same plays with the same names, it's like thumbs down and, and um, triangle up and stuff like that, where exact plays that Van Gundy used from Riley. And there were other great storylines, too. You had, first of all, Van Gundy also, Stan Van Gundy was an assistant coach for the Heat then. So Van Gundy was coaching against his brother. You had Alonzo and Patrick, two great centers, both from Georgetown. They were like brothers. They were so close. Um, you mentioned how Riley didn't let his players go out to dinner with guys. Alonzo and Patrick used to go out to dinner with each other, even when their teams played in the playoffs, and Riley hated it. He used to give Alonzo a lot of crap about it, but they kept doing it anyway. So there were a lot of good storylines to that series, and the series were – I mean, they were like it was like wrestling matches or boxing matches or something. It was they were so physical and so the games were so close and tightly contested and um, yeah, that was just a very memorable matchup. You know, and I really hope Jeff Van Gundy he returns to coaching one day. Like I think he's a good you know analyst and broadcaster, but I feel his heart you know still is still on the sidelines. Yeah, I agree. I mean. Cause he, and he's just, you know, I talk about it in the book, Van Gunny's like, he's just like a basketball junkie. You know, he just lives and breathes the game. And, you know, I even, I talked to a couple of his assistant coaches, uh, like Brendan Malone was telling me like, he's like, yeah, Jeff didn't have any hobbies. Like he, you know, he didn't do like, it was basketball all the time when they're on the road uh, in the hotel, the, you know, his, co- his assistant said like, he didn't leave the hotel room. Like he'd just sit in the room and watch film all day long. Like not he didn't like go out and catch a movie or get lunch with the guys or whatever. It was just film, 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 film. And of course he had those legendary he, he always had the bags under his eyes, looked like he hadn't slept at all because he was up all night watching film. <clears throat> um 
And I think he did a great job. I mean, he did a great job with the Knicks. Uh, got to the finals. He had a, a few really good seasons after with the Rockets. And, yeah, I think I think he's a very good coach. And I'd love to see him on the sidelines, too. You know, so, like, the 90s was, like, filled with heartbreak and excitement. And, like, trades, they're, like, a part of the game. But, like, two transactions that I felt was um, John Starks going to Golden State for Spree and um, Charles Oakley going to um, Toronto for Marcus Camby. But I feel like if the Knicks, if they didn't make those moves in particular, that run in 99 doesn't happen. Yeah, those are tough. I mean, uh, Chackett's told me trading Oakley was the hardest thing he had to do as an executive because um, both of those guys had meant so much to the team for so long. They were really kind of the heart and soul of the team. And, um, <clears throat> but I agree with you completely. I mean, the Starks deal, especially, I mean, you got Latrell Sprewell who basically, you know, they, they got him at a discount price because he had choked his coach the year before. And there was that whole scandal. Um, but he was a different, he was on a different level than Starks as a player, especially then. I think Starks was starting to slow down a little bit. And, uh, and the Oakley deal was tough, too. Um, that was controversial. Van Gundy wasn't really happy about the Oakley deal. Ernie Grunfeld, the GM, made that deal. Uh, Van Gundy wasn't happy about it um, just because Oak had been so important to the team. And Camby was young and somewhat injury-prone, and there were some questions about his character. And uh, he answered all those questions, as you said. I mean, there's no way they, they make that finals run without him. He turned out to, to be great in the playoffs. And uh, <clears throat> I think both trades would be trades, but sometimes sometimes trades are difficult to make. You know, I was reading in, in John Stark's books that he, that he wanted to come back to the Knicks. You know, he wanted to buy it. I think he somehow ended up on the Bulls or, yeah, the Bulls, and he wanted to buy yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, in hindsight, I wish it would have happened because I really felt, you know, um, they would have gave the Spurs a bigger, um, a better chance to. Um, I mean, they would have gave themselves a better chance to win against the Spurs, but but they would just overmatch. Yeah, this, the Spurs were that Spurs team was too big, and the problem was the Knicks didn't have Patrick. Patrick tore partially tore his Achilles in the uh, <clears throat> against Indiana in the conference finals, and. Um, I'm sorry, in the second round. And um, they were able to get by without him, but against San Antonio with Duncan and Robinson, uh, the next, the, the size was just way too much for them, especially without Patrick. I mean, and I really hate to say this, but at that point, I think the Knicks were better off without him. You know, they were playing faster. You know, they were younger. And, um, you know, Campy, he was a better defensive, uh, he was a better defensive matchup for younger um forwards and centers at the time yeah i mean that was the big question the big controversy at the time are the knicks better without patrick it seemed like against the pacers they were i, I think maybe against certain teams they might have matched up better without patrick uh because once you brought in spree and Camby, they were they were an up and down faster team and patrick at that point was about 36 years old on you know bad knees and he just couldn't get up and down the floor with those guys and so, um, but I think against the Spurs, you know, they, they really could have used him because because of his size. I mean, I, I still think even if he did play, you know, whoever was guarding him, Tim Duncan or David Robinson, 
they would have gave him buckets. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think the Knicks were winning that series with Patrick. I think he would have made it a little more competitive. It was five games. Maybe they lose in six if they have Patrick. But, um, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that Spurs team was too good. And and unfortunately, like a year later, that was the end of Patrick in New York. You know, instead of just letting his contract expire or just resigning him for like another year or two and let him and letting him retire as a Nick. They basically traded him for picks that didn't amount to nothing and a whole bunch of bad contracts that basically plagued them for the rest of the decade. Yeah, it was a, it was a bad decision. And and I understand it. I talked to Dave Checkets about it, and, and he felt that Patrick had been so loyal to the Knicks and such an important part of the franchise for 15 years uh, that it was really Patrick wanted to go. He asked to be traded. And Chekets felt that he owed it to Patrick to respect his wishes and trade him. Um, but uh, you're 100% right. I mean, they would have been much better off. There was one year left on his contract. They would have been much better off letting his contract run out. Instead, they took back some bad contracts, which they later traded for worse contracts. And it just kind of spiraled out of control. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. Patrick says now if he had to do it over again, he wouldn't, he wouldn't ask to be traded. Um, but he did, and kind of out of respect for him, they they agreed to his wishes. You know, and it was weird seeing Patrick in a um, Sonics jersey, but it really hurt me to see him in that Orlando Magic jersey. You know, I was in high school in Florida at the time, and, you know, just seeing him, you know, from when I first started watching basketball in the mid-'90s to, like, that play he was in 2002. Oh, it was just painful to watch. It was basically yeah. watching Hakeem and um, with Toronto. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. It's hard. It's always hard, right? With, with with the guys when you see great ones like that that are just at the end and they can't do it anymore. And um, I don't know. You kind of wish they retire earlier. You don't. You know. You don't. You know. And you could just remember them the way they were when they were in their prime. But I don't know. You know, still making a lot of money, so I can't blame him for keep going. And like the last great moment I felt from like the '90s Knicks happened like in 2003 when um they retired his jersey, Patrick's jersey. I mean, yeah, they played against Orlando that night. Coincidentally, it was like right before the All Star break, or it was like right after. I really don't remember, but um, but yeah, it was a great moment. Yeah, were you there that night? I was actually there that night. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah, that was a great moment. And it was really nice for Patrick because, like, you know, throughout his career, there was kind of – there was tension between Patrick and, and the fans. Um, he wasn't – he wasn't – he was never loved like a lot of New York superstars have been loved. I think part of that was his personality. I think part of that was – there were such high expectations for him when he came to New York and, and they didn't win a title. So there was some disappointment. Um, but I, I think he never really got the love that he deserved while he was playing. And so it, it was really special to see him finally get that, you know, after he was done. And like part of it, I felt was like also the Jordan thing and like guaranteeing they was going to beat the Bulls and guaranteeing, yeah. you know, they was going to beat the Rockets when, when they fell flat. So, yeah. Like, do you think like Patrick 
like he deserves like to be a head coach in the league or at least, you know, get a look by the Knicks. You know, if they don't want him as a head coach, at least put him on the bench, give him something. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to. Like he, he uh, I mean, he put in his time as an assistant, you know, and uh, under some really good coaches. He coached under under Jeff Van Gundy in Houston. He coached under Stan Van Gundy, he coached under Steve Clifford, uh, some really successful coaches, and they all spoke so highly of him. Um, I definitely would have liked to see him get an interview with the Knicks. You know, I think it's hard to say. There are a lot of, there are a lot of good assistant coaches, right? Um, a lot of guys who have put in the time. Um, but so I don't know if, if they should have hired him or what, but he, he should, he should be in the discussion. I think he should, I think he should have been, I don't know if he still wants to, or he's happy at Georgetown or what, but he should get interviews for head coaching jobs if, if he wants them. You know, and there's no shame being like a career assistant, uh, but just no, at, absolutely yeah, not. But just at least give him a look because, me personally, I think that's one of the reasons why the Knicks are cursed because they don't treat you know former players well, especially Patrick, yeah. somebody that gave him his blood, sweat, and tears. You know what they did to Oakley. Yeah, the Oak and, thing, man. And I, I was there know, that the night last... too. Oh really? Yeah, I was wow. actually covering the game. It was it was against the Clippers, and I'm not sure if you've seen the Guardian lately. Um, I was sitting up on the bridge. That's where like yeah. they have some media, and like I had a clear shot of what was going on, but I couldn't oh, really wow. tell who it was. I just know it was like somebody's getting is getting into a fight with security, but I didn't know it was Oakley until I hopped on Twitter like a few minutes later, and then I seen it was him. Right. Yeah, you know there, <clears throat> there have been. It's funny you said cursed. I mean, the you could almost call it the curse of Patrick because it seems like it seems like when he was traded, that was kind of the start of the the downward spiral, right? I mean, there have been a million things that happened since then, but it seemed like that was the start. And the last couple decades, as you know, have just been it's been kind of brutal, and there have been a lot of low points uh and embarrassing moments you know on the court off the court for me nothing was more i don't think anything was more upsetting than the oakley incident because it was just like you know he like this guy was such an important part of this team this franchise for so long uh you know a lot of people think his number should be in the rafters and here you are throwing him out of madison square garden like it was just it, it just made me really sad as a knicks fan and you know it was crazy. Um, like prior to that night, and they were selling his jersey and selling his picture at the gift shop. The next game after that incident, it wasn't there yeah. anymore. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's crazy. I personally not surprising, but yeah. So I'm like, all right. So before I let you go, I I want you um Mount Rushmore of '90s Knicks. I'll give you mine. Um, okay. Okay. Can can't have a list without Patrick. Because they don't go to the finals or anything without him, despite him not getting it done. Right. That's just the way it is. Um, John Starks, just because I like his story. You know, Anthony Mason, because, you know, he's from Queens. I also like his underdog story as well. You know, Greg Anthony, because he played with a lot of heart. You know, he he was underrated. Mm-hmm. You know, he really doesn't get the respect that he deserved because he wasn't like a um, – a high scoring guard, but he was serviceable and he was mm-hmm. tough. And I was having trouble with the last one. 
You know, I'm partial to Xavier McDaniel. Um, Chris Childs is another guy. But for me, I'm going with Marcus Camby. You know, he was a unicorn type of player. You know, Anthony Davis before Anthony Davis. Well, Anthony Davis light, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, a good defensive player. And it sucks that they traded him basically for what was left of Antonio McDyceney. Was was that the trade or was it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was the McDyce thing. Or Nene, one of them two Mc- he got traded for. Yeah, McDyce's knee was shot, yeah. yeah. So that's my five. All right, so five guys. Uh, definitely, obviously, Patrick. Uh, I agree with you on Starks. I would also say Oak because Oak was such a huge part of the, that team for so long. Uh, he was a co-captain for many years. Um, from later 90s, I'll go Alan Houston uh, because nobody on that team in the 90s could shoot like he could. And uh, I'll go Larry Johnson, too. Um, oh, that's he was, a good one. He was an important part of those teams in the later years. It was I love a lot of respect for him because he was such a – um, you know, he was such a monster when he first came to the league and then he hurt his back and he came to New York and he sacrificed a lot. You know, he wasn't the guy anymore, um, but he was cool with that. And so many of the guys I talked to talked about what an amazing teammate Larry Johnson was. He kind of kept the team together and, and um, he changed his game some. I mean, you know, early in his career, it was all dunks and down in the post and then later in his career he started shooting threes he really um he really adapted to his circumstances and i and i think it was a big part of those teams so I'll, I'll go with those five you know he would get buckets if he was playing today oh yeah yeah you know he'll he'll be i don't i don't want to say an mvp but pretty close to it yeah for sure all right so um i want to thank you for coming on today paul can you tell us um where can we find your book at yeah, so the book is available um, on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com uh, through my publisher, uh, McFarland Publishing Co. Um, those are the best places to get it. All right. Thank you for coming on, man. All right. Thanks so much, Jamal. Right, Appreciate thank you. it. All right.